I think that a lot of people who aren't in community organizing, they ask us, but why? Like, why do people get involved? Why do people volunteer their time or their opinions or their thoughts? And it's interesting to me because what that says to me is that they haven't taken the time to ask. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Beth Wiesendonger. Beth has worked in community building since 2011. She began her career in politics, joining grassroots campaigns, and then later moved to corporate community building. Beth joined Fiverr in 2016 to help build the community program. Today, as Fiverr's senior community programs manager, she's a champion of bringing people together and leveraging resources to educate, inform, and inspire the community. In this episode, Beth and I chat about her personal journey to belonging, growing a community for a marketplace like Fiverr, accessibility, pivoting during COVID-19, and so much more. So with that, let's jump right into it. Hey Beth, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. Of course, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, to get started, I'm always really curious about how community builders actually become community builders. So I want to learn a little bit more about your early journey and your early career. So I'm really curious what you were like in high school. I know that's kind of a random place to start, but I'd love to learn a little bit about your interests while you were in high school and how you actually found a sense of belonging at such an early age. So I've always been very extroverted. I think my parents and teachers would probably say too extroverted. One of the comments I would always get on those report cards that they sent home with your kids is great student, but talks too much in class. So I've always just been a very social outgoing person. I would say really when I started to feel a sense of belonging and find my place was when I got very involved with music. I started taking music lessons at a very young age. I was in elementary school and I got more and more involved with music as I continued through high school. I took part in a lot of groups, both within my high school and outside of high school. So I had several communities that were related through that common thread. And that's how I made the majority of my connections and really felt part of something bigger when I was younger. I love that. That's so awesome that you were able to find a sense of belonging through music. I think that's really beautiful. In post-secondary, did you end up pursuing music and studying that as well? I actually did study music. I went to San Francisco State. I have my bachelor's in music performance in classical orchestral percussion music, which is very niche. And then I did some postgraduate work in New York at the New School in the same thing. That's so cool. And is that how you started your career? What was your first role out of school? It was. So when I graduated from school, I was part of a lot of different performing groups, but I'm sure if there are any artists listening, they know that it doesn't quite pay the bills. So I wanted to find what we call in the music industry a day job. And my way of doing that was to really think about what else I was passionate about. And for me, as a bit of a backstory, my grandmother battled with breast cancer for a large portion of her life. And eventually it is one of the reasons that she got very sick in her older age. And so when I was looking for something to do, I saw a job posting that was about community organizing for the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. 
and making sure that people were aware that what Planned Parenthood does is actually provide a lot of early cancer screenings and health care for people who really can't access it in other ways. So my first job was working for a company called Grassroots Campaigns, specifically on the Planned Parenthood Action Fund account. And what I did was one-on-one voter outreach, education, and awareness. That's really amazing that you were able to contribute so meaningfully and make such a difference working in that. So I also know that, you know, before you got into tech and into your current role, you spent some time in politics and HR. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about those experiences and more so what are some of the skills that you learned in those roles that are helping you in your career now? So like I said, when I started, I was very interested in campaigning for progressive causes. So throughout my time at Grassroots Campaigns and eventually as a campaign director, I worked for the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. We also ran education and awareness for the ACLU, for UNICEF and the Nature Conservancy. So I knew when I left that job, I wanted to get a little bit more corporate experience, but I still wanted to focus on culture building in a way. And when I went into human resources, I was very interested in building that internal culture at a company, understanding how to initiate CSR initiatives, really work on diversity and inclusion. And so I think when I started at Fiverr in 2016, I had not just the interpersonal communication that I had developed throughout the years, but I also had been working for a larger company and I understood how to adapt those community organizing models into a business setting, which has been really beneficial for both Fiverr and myself. Those are such key skills for anybody to have as a community leader or community manager. Something else that must be really beneficial to your role right now at Fiverr and something that I'm sure helps you truly relate to the community that you work with is that you were also a freelancer for a while, right? Can you tell me a little bit more about what that experience was like for you and what types of projects were you working on as a freelancer? Yeah, my freelancing career is really different than what I do now. It was mostly when I was a music professional. So I was doing a lot of work playing for different symphonies and musical groups all around the Bay Area, which is where I'm originally from. I live in New York now. So I think throughout that time, again, because the common thread was music, community was always present. I always felt a sense of belonging because you were experiencing everything with groups. Music is not a solitary activity. It's very community-based. So when I went to Fiverr and I started hearing there are people who work remotely, There are freelancers who don't work in an office. You know, they spend their entire days in isolation. I really came at it from a perspective of, wow, I know how important community is and how that's really helped me go through the struggle of freelancing, which, as we all know, is very up and down. And I can't imagine not having that support network. So I'm really passionate about providing that to people. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I think a sense of community is so important and probably one of the most important things actually to be successful as a freelancer and not to burn out from it. I've also freelanced myself and I know how isolating it can be just working from home by yourself. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way these days, whether they're a freelancer or they're working full time for a company and they've switched to work from home because of everything that's going on. So a sense of community is just so key. I'm 
I'm excited to dig into what you're currently doing at Fiverr. Before we jump into that, can you actually share a little bit about what Fiverr is in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with it? And then tell me what community means at Fiverr. So Fiverr is an online marketplace for creative digital services, which is a bit of a mouthful, but an easy way to think about it is almost like an Amazon, but instead of a product, it's a freelance service. So there are two sides of the marketplace. We have our buyers who are, they range from solo entrepreneurs to business owners to people who work within larger companies who make business decisions and and need business resources. And then our sellers are freelancers, again, also entrepreneurs. They might have small studios or small businesses, but they're offering the services. For us, community encompasses all of those people. We serve a large community of people and want to make sure that they have the opportunity to build their business brand and dreams, no matter where they are, who they are, where they come from. So accessibility is really big for us. Education is really big for us. And providing resources is also really big for us. So when I came on board in 2016, our big push was to take this online community we had in sort of a virtual space and bring them offline and into local areas where people could meet one another, they could form these support networks, they could have fireside chats and panels and networking events, really so we could leverage the resources that we have and give back to our communities no matter where they are. And as that's shifted because of COVID, we've been able to connect our community, not just in their own local area, but on a global scale as well. So you just touched on this, and I think it's really interesting that Fiverr is a marketplace. And I think that puts you in such a unique position as a community manager, because you really have to decide sometimes like which side of the marketplace do you focus on? Is it the sellers? Is it the buyers? Or are you trying to bring them together in common community building initiatives? I'm really curious how Fiverr approached that decision. Was there ever a point where you were just trying to focus on one side? and just take me a little bit through that. I find it really fascinating. So I think when we first started many years ago, we assumed that the people who would be more interested in engaging in these types of offline events would be our sellers, mostly because, you know, if you're a freelancer, again, you don't have a workspace, you're alone for many hours of the day. You might not have that colleague that you can turn to and ask questions or get their opinion on something. So we wanted to foster that environment. But very quickly, we realized that Fiverr community members are doers. And being a doer is something that both of our buyers and our sellers identify with. It's a mindset, right? And those people are often looking for the same things. If there's a seller who sells social media management, and he or she needs help with SEO, they're also a buyer, right? Because they need that resource. And it's the same vice versa. So we realized that by providing meaningful content that had a real value proposition for somebody who is a business thinker, this would apply to both our buyers and sellers, and this would be more meaningful. And it's really been great to see both of those populations get to know one another because they're able to listen to each other. They're able to give advice on if you're a buyer, how to communicate more effectively, whatever your business brief is. If you're a seller, you know how to give those services and communicate with your clients more effectively. So it is an ecosystem for sure. And there's a lot more overlap than we originally anticipated. 
but it's been really great to have that learning and produce events and in educational resources that benefit both populations. I love that you refer to the Fiverr community as an ecosystem, and I especially love that branding that you guys came up with to call your community members doers. I think that really helps them relate to each other and really come together under some common ground. So before COVID hit, can you take me back to those like pre-COVID times? What kind of community initiatives were you running and what did your format and events look like? So we tend to think of events and our event series as products. And what I mean by that is each event has a different goal. You can either have a highly tactical event that's based around learning a professional skill, a workshop, for example, or you can have something that's very, very inspirational and aspirational. So you kind of have to run the gamut between the two. There are some people who are really interested in just learning technical skills, but they also want to be inspired by somebody who's made a career out of that technical skill. So we always try to combine both of those viewpoints in any event that we do. But typically they can either be workshop format, which is teaching some sort of professional skill. They can be a fireside chat format with a leader in the community who has gone through some failure and some success and can really tell that story. It's more narrative. Or they can be panels and panels bring together several industry leaders who are experts in whatever trend is being discussed, whether it's influencer marketing or design, etc. Very cool. So how do you keep the conversation going after the events are done? How do you foster connection between the community members that showed up? We've changed tactics on this quite a bit, and we've also added new tactics to this idea. Marcy Walker, who's a colleague of mine, and she communicates quite frequently with a lot of the community leaders, runs a Slack channel where everyone can chat with each other. We also have a event site where people can see all the upcoming events that are happening and write in with ideas and ask questions. You know, we have community leadership application forms. So we approach it from, again, the organic follow-up where we email individual community members that we know are particularly engaged and we introduce them to one another and we have phone calls and meet them face-to-face. And then we also have a hybrid of that virtual component where people are talking on the forum and getting to know each other in a more global way. So you touched on doing local events, and that's actually how we first met in person was when your team was in Toronto for your Doers Across the Globe series. I'm really curious about how you guys actually select the cities that you're going to do these types of events in, and then how do you choose which regions to really double down on? Part organic decision-making and part business decision-making. Whenever we do community outreach, it tends to be in areas that are highly populated just because there's more people. We obviously have events wherever there are interested and engaged community. A lot of these larger cities have very robust, strong team leaders for Fiverr. And we try to not just find engaged leadership, but really build community-based teams around that leadership. It's called the snowflake model of organizing. And basically what that means is you have one community leader and then four or five engaged community members who support that community leader to run and execute events and activations. So when we think about 
where we're going to host large events. We think about the strength of our community there, how many people we know are already engaged with us and are asking for this sort of activation to happen in in their hometown. And then we also focus from a business perspective on the top markets that we have. And we want to make sure that we're addressing the lack of resources that those communities see. So it seems like you have sort of a hybrid model where there's some events that your team at HQ fully takes care of and organizes, and then you have some more grassroots, self-organized, volunteer-led events. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys go about making the decision when an event should be taken care of by HQ or when it makes more sense for it to be locally led? And then how do you support those volunteers and how do you keep them motivated? With volunteer teams, the best way to keep people motivated is one, to approach it from an authentic and empathetic place. We're not dictating to people that they have to have events. We really want to fulfill a need and a desire. So one, if there aren't people in a particular territory who are interested in having events, we don't force them, right? We want to be there as a support and a leader, but not as, again, a dictator. So I think our engaged leaders are already pretty motivated on their own. We have events on the schedule to sort of create a sense of urgency around each event. And each event is a moment in time. So we don't want to have something that's happening weekly because then you can really sort of flood people's emails with too many events and then there's not as much demand. So we really try to space them out and make sure that whatever we're doing, it's not just for consistency's sake, it's really adding value to people's lives. As far as the events that we plan in HQ versus ones that are more grassroots led, those events are usually addressing a much more higher push, if that makes sense. So I organize events typically when it is full day conference programming or when there's a lot of behind the scenes logistical work that needs to be done that we don't want to ask our community leaders to do. However, there is still a strong community presence at those events because we always want to know who our community in those places is interested in hearing from. So when we're thinking about programming and we're thinking about reaching out to individual speakers, it all comes from a place that's very connected to our grassroots organizing, even if it's not logistically implemented by the grassroots organizers. Yeah, I think that's something that probably makes your events so much stronger when you have that local perspective of what people actually want and what's going to make sense for that city. I mean, people know their community best, right? It's not my place to go to a place like Toronto where I don't live and tell you who you should be listening to or where you should be eating. So I think, again, it's this authentic, empathetic approach where you, as a community organizer, you have to listen and don't be afraid to ask your community for their input because it's going to be so much more impactful for them if they feel like they're involved, even in just suggesting people to speak or businesses to highlight. I think that a lot of people who aren't in community organizing, they ask us, but why? Like, why do people get involved? Why do people volunteer their time or their opinions or their thoughts? And it's interesting to me because what that says to me is that they haven't taken the time to ask, right? Because usually if you ask someone their opinion on something, they have one. And that to me is the most interesting and important part of community organizing because I've learned so much from the people that we serve. 
so much of your community strategy was really rooted in these in-person local events. So when COVID hit, I'm sure it was a pretty tough transition for your team. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that process was like and how has Fiverr's approach to community shifted during these times? We obviously have a very robust offline program. We do about 350 to 400 events a year. So when COVID hit, we had to shift that all to a virtual space. And at first, we weren't really sure what that would look like or how engaged people would be. But I'm sure if you ask any community organizer during this time, they found that their communities are very engaged and they still have that appetite for connection and for talking to other people and being part of something. It's also been great to see community leaders in different cities across the world connect with one another. I mean, obviously a community leader in LA is very in touch with the LA community, but now they're also making relationships and friendships and connections with the UK community and the community in New York and everywhere. And it's also been amazing for content planning because Instead of saying, all right, this event we're having is in Austin, Texas, who's the best speaker for this topic in Austin, Texas, we can say, who's the best speaker for this topic in the world, because we're not tied to a geographic location. I think after when things start going back to normal, of course, we're going to go back to doing face-to-face events because nothing really replaces that kind of interaction. But I do think there's something to be said for a hybrid model where we incorporate the virtual events that we've been doing with the live components as well. Honestly, it's the same thing for us. I'm definitely really excited for the moment when we'll potentially be able to gather in person again. I think the magic of the Fuck Up Nights community is really in person and having those types of interactions and seeing the emotion of the speakers when they're sharing their failure stories and really being able to have lots of different side conversations and meet the community that's there. But that being said, I don't want to lose what we've created online. We've seen great engagement in our virtual events, and I definitely want to keep that accessibility to people that aren't available to come out to our in-person events. So I can see us moving towards some kind of hybrid model as well that really brings together the best of both worlds. I don't know how yet, but definitely something that I'm exploring and thinking about. I also think with online events, it's a little bit easier to disperse those sort of learnings broadly, right? Like it's very easy to record a Zoom webinar, for example, and create some sort of landing page that has these permanent resources for people to access. Yeah, it's so important. I think accessibility is so key with these events. And I don't think I realized that before. I mean, I think our events were always as accessible as we can possibly make them. We always made sure to use accessible spaces. Our events were paid, but the prices were really reasonable. And we also offered pay what you can tickets and we would give some free tickets out to underrepresented communities. But that being said, I never looked at it from the side of, you know, somebody who lives in like a suburb of Toronto who just can't make it and time to the event after work, but really wants to participate. So with these virtual events, I've had people literally reach out to me saying things like, you know, I've been watching Fuck Up Nights for the last three years from a distance and I've been engaging with your posts and I've always been such a fan of what you guys are doing, but I've never been able to make it out there because it's just so far away from my work and to be able to get downtown in time for the event that just didn't work. But now I'm finally able to attend my first Fuck Up Night three years later. Something like that is really rewarding to hear and it's really nice to have that accessibility available and I think it's something that you know a lot of other event organizers probably didn't think of before as well. 
And as somebody who does a little bit of disability advocacy, obviously this is a podcast, but for your viewers who don't know, I'm a double amputee. I wear prosthetics. I live a pretty able life. I'm pretty mobile, but it is nice to see things like accessibility being talked about, especially in a tech space where maybe they haven't been thought of as thoroughly before. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's it's interesting how it took a pandemic for people to notice how accessibility is more critical than ever. From what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, you know, conversations that I'm having with other community leaders on this podcast and just day to day, it really does seem like it's something that's top of mind. And I really do hope that we keep engaging on it and keep taking it to the next level. I think right now it's something that's kind of hot and trending. And I think that's such an awesome thing. How do you measure success and the business impact of the community events and initiatives that you're putting on? So I think this is the million dollar question for any community organizer, right? Because it's hard. It's hard to track what that success looks like. I think there's two ways you can look at it from a business perspective. One is from a marketing side of things, right? Where it's all about perception and awareness. So when those people come to the event, for Fiverr, you know, what other speakers are there? What businesses are we aligning ourselves with? Are we presenting ourselves as a thought leader in the space? Are we making ourselves more reputable and trustworthy? Those things are really hard to measure. You can do post-event surveys, especially when you have an external audience who's never been to a Fiverr event before, and this is their first one. And you can get some knowledge from that, but it's much like running a marketing campaign where you have ads in the subway, you're not really sure if that person saw that ad in the subway and then converted to somebody who buys on the platform or sells on the platform. You can kind of see a general link, but definitely not correlation. So I think it's hard to measure something that's more perception and awareness. From a business side of things, what you can do is you can offer coupon codes to your attendees and you can see how many people redeem them. You can find ways to sign people in, which is huge. Like if you're not collecting data at your live events, you basically are not having the event because you can't measure impact at all, right? So making sure you're signing people in, seeing if those people are already consumers of your product via their email that they use to sign into the event, and then watching how their behavior changes on the platform, the more engaged they are. I'm really impressed at how you've been able to grow and progress through various community roles at Fiverr. So I'm curious if you have any advice for community professionals that are just starting out, how can they really grow within an organization and make the most impact? I think something that's been hugely beneficial for me, and I'm going to go back to the beginning of my career because I think this is sort of where it started. Anybody who's worked on a grassroots level of political organizing knows that you're doing 50,000 jobs all the time. You're running on a very lean operation. There's not generally a lot of resources when it comes to political organizing. And so every person who is really invested in the issue and is working for these political organizations is really 
wearing a lot of different hats. They're doing a lot of tasks. They're not afraid to jump in and get their hands dirty and do a lot of different things. And they're also not afraid of being told no. You hear no so many more times than you hear yes as any kind of community organizer, but it's especially true in politics. And so you very quickly learn, for lack of a better expression, to have no shame. There's no shame in asking. The worst that happens is they tell you no, but really all you need for a successful day is that one yes. So when I started working at Fiverr coming from that background, I actually think that working in politics is not so different than working in tech because again, it's a very lean team. They really want people to be team players and to be creatively minded and solution driven and to not be afraid to say, I have an idea for that. I'm going to test it out and get to work, right? So my advice is to really approach any organization like that. Obviously, not to be overbearing, but to really take the time to get to know your colleagues, learn what has been going well, what hasn't been going well. Don't be afraid to share ideas. Think creatively. Don't be afraid of getting told no. That's such great advice. And honestly, I think that's so applicable to anybody who's a young professional who's just starting out, whether you're in the community profession or really any industry. I think having that mindset is so key and really approaching it from, you know, how can I really learn the most and how can I impact this organization and how can I just put myself out there and not be afraid of hearing no? I really love that. And I think that's advice that I really live by as well. I mean, we're community builders, right? So it makes sense for us to develop a community in the workplace that we're in because one, it's good for you as a human being who likes having good relationships with your colleagues, right? Two, if you have people who know you well and they like you and they trust you and they know that you do good work, they're going to help you succeed. They're going to give you support on the different initiatives that you drive. They're going to connect you to the right people if you need help. But again, it it has to come from an organic and empathetic and authentic place. You have to create that community with the people you work with, as well as a community around the people that you organize. So I want to shift gears here and spend a little bit of time talking about your personal community. You moved from San Francisco to New York, and I'm guessing that was a pretty big shift for you. What spurred that decision? And when you did get to New York, how did you find your sense of community in a new city? It was a big shift. I knew... This is a very cheesy story, but the first time I came to New York, my aunt and uncle were studying at Rutgers and we came into New York for a day and I was probably like 10 years old at the time. And I knew immediately from being there, like I remember saying to myself as a 10 year old, I'm going to move to New York someday. So it's always been something I knew I would do. When I studied after my undergraduate here in New York, I lived here for about a year. I didn't really make a lot of sticky community connections. And so that was very hard for me. And I moved back to San Francisco for a few years, always with the intention of coming back when I knew who I was a little bit more, right? Because in your early 20s, you have no idea. I mean, I still have no idea what I'm doing now in my 30s, but I certainly certainly didn't at my 20s. So when I moved back to New York, I was a little bit older. I approached it from a different perspective. And that perspective was just to be really social about the things I was already interested in. And I had faith that the right people would come into my life. I've been very lucky that through Fiverr, a lot of my colleagues that are still there and have since moved to different companies are truly my real life friends. 
But I've also made a lot of friendship through, again, the causes that I'm passionate about. So I'm very politically active in my personal life. I try to be a part of as many DNI spaces as possible. So a lot of my friendships come from that. And then I've also formed lifelong friendships from my involvement in music. So a lot of my friends, even currently in New York still, are involved in the music scene. So it's kind of a big conglomeration of every community I've ever been a part of. I really love that and I can totally relate to that feeling. Every time that I visit New York, I really feel at home there and I really feel this pull to the city, which is really hard to explain. I have a lot of friends and family there and I can totally see myself living there one day as well. I think that New York can can be a very isolating place. I do think that there are people who come here and they don't find those communities. And it's hard to live here if you don't have people here to support you. I mean, you can say that about any big city, but I think New York is traditionally one of those places. But I can really say that even though at first it was quite lonely, once I had those bonds, I can't imagine living anywhere else. Yeah, it's like you said, a city really does come down to the relationships and the communities that you're part of. You could be in the most amazing city in the world, but if you don't have that sense of belonging or really communities that you're part of, you're going to feel alone at the end of the day and you're not going to get that full experience of living in that dream city. So this is kind of a strange question, but I'm curious, how do you choose your people? You know, really those group of friends that are the closest to you? I mean, I think choosing is maybe not the right word because I don't feel that I've chosen the people I'm closest to. I feel like we've had a natural connection and it's something where perhaps we've chosen each other in a way. I like to think that my friends are very open-minded people. They're usually pretty progressive people. They're usually artistic people, but more than anything, they're people that I have, again, those authentic connections with. They're not people that I've forced myself to hang out with until I've gotten to know them well. They're people that I've always felt some sort of connection and spark with from the moment we met. And I think that that's a very ephemeral and hard thing to describe because we're never taught as we grow older how to make friends, right? Like you get friends in school and then as you're an adult, you don't realize that to continue friendships and to make new friends, you have to put in work and you have to meet a lot of people. Again, it's that concept of you meet a hundred people, but maybe you'll connect really genuinely with a small percentage of them. So you have to be outgoing. You have to be open and accepting. You have to put yourself in spaces that align with your interests and your passions and those friendships will come and they'll come in an authentic way that's organic and that you don't have to force. And the best friendships are the ones that you don't have to force. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you put that so beautifully. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Community to me means a safe space. It means having support, having unconditional support and feeling safe enough to communicate your needs in the things that you're struggling with. That's such a heartwarming definition. I really love it. Beth, thank you so much again for joining me today. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. 
I had such a great time chatting with Beth, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can find Beth on LinkedIn by searching for Beth Wiesendonger, the spelling of her last name is in the episode title and description, and on Instagram you can find her at Beth M. Donger. You can also learn more about Fiverr's community events at events.fiverr.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.